remain standing if you would and take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans. Romans. Um, we'll begin reading in, in uh, chapter 11. Beginning in verse 30. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so that they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. O oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful and blessed, God, to have a copy of your word in our possession that we might read and, and meditate and consider these things. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through the, the sermon, that, God, it, it would uh, bring honor to you, yes, but, Lord, also that you would further sanctify and glorify us. And, Lord, even that there might be those who do not know you, that would come to faith in you as a result of, of this. We thank you, Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen. This morning, uh, I have down that we're going to look at Romans 12, 1 and 2. Actually, we're just going to look at Romans 12, 1. But this morning, I want us to consider the amazing reality of how radically God has changed the relationship between himself and those who have faith in Him. And the book of Romans is just a great book uh, to, to look at that with um, because it does, it, it's, it's a, a great treatment of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, if you go back and you look at chapter 1, you see it, it opens up and begins with speaking of God's creation and how God has revealed Himself in His creation. He's revealed His power. He's revealed His glory. All of His creation reflects who He is. We see a lot of that language in the Psalms. And, and God's fingerprint is everywhere in His creation. Even in us, His people, we are made in the image of God. 
But unfortunately, in that same chapter, we also find out that mankind wants nothing to do with God. Uh, that is because of our sin. And we love our sin more than we love God. And so we seek to suppress the truth that God exists. Now, brothers and sisters, I, I want to just say this. Uh, as we see in our culture an increasing hostility towards the church, I want you to keep the proper perspective of what is going on. Um, I don't want to say that people aren't truly angry with the church, but behind that, more so, is an anger towards God. That uh, the church stands as, as a reminder to our culture that God does exist, that He is the Creator, that He has a right over their life as, as their Creator. But they don't want to hear that. They want to be the captain of their own destiny. They don't want to have to submit to God or to worship God. They want to worship their own idols, and so they seek to suppress the truth. And so and you're going to see more people lashing out at the church, but that's really because they're angry at God. So we, so we see that sense of suppression of the truth. And as a result of that, in chapter 2, we see God's judgment. Uh, but we also see in that the hopelessness of mankind that there's no way that we can satisfy God. As a matter of fact, in chapter 3, we read that there's no one that seeks after God. And later on in Romans, he even Paul even talks about how we are enemies of God and under His righteous wrath. And I say His righteous wrath because He is right to bring His wrath upon humanity. We don't necessarily see that ourselves. As human beings, we don't typically see our sin. We actually don't see the degree to which we have sinned against God and, and grieved Him. We, we really actually think we're better than what we are. Because it's really easy for us to, to look and say, well, I'm better than that person because I don't lie like they do or I don't rob banks like they do or I don't beat my wife like that person does there. And so we think that we're better, but we don't understand that really at the core of our being as well is a desire to be a master of our own destiny. We want to be God. We want to control what we want. And so therefore, there really is no hope and and uh, God's wrath is on us but then as we continue on in Romans 3 and through 5 we see the gift of the righteousness of Jesus Christ to mankind as a matter of fact we read in Romans 5 verse 8 in that while we were still sinners Christ died for us that is God out of his mercy sent his only son that we might have life rather than suffer God's judgment to those who believe there is forgiveness and a reconciliation with God. As a matter of fact, chapter 6 through 8, Paul goes on to explain that the wages of sin is death, yes, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And it's by faith that we come, we are alive in Christ. And as we are alive in Christ, as Romans 8, 1 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As a matter of fact, if you continue on to the end of that chapter in Romans 8, you read the good news that there's nothing that can even separate us from the love of Christ. In other words, God is no longer angry with us, but God loves us in Christ because He has chosen to do so. And that's what we see in chapters 9 through 11. As, as uh, Paul writes where the Lord says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. 
In other words, our salvation doesn't rely upon our own desire or our own effort. You know, as I said earlier, uh, Paul is very clear that there are none who seek God. But when we were dead in our sins and, and, and fully enforced in our rejection of God, He pursued us. Despite our sinfulness and our waywardness, he's, He pursued us and we became alive because God wanted us to be alive, not because of something greatly that we desired or because something we deserved. Instead, He chose to show us His mercy and to give us that which we did not desire. So brothers and sisters, I, I want you to see here this morning how Paul moves from this picture that, that we are enemies of God and, and we are under His wrath. And, and, and as Romans progresses, you see there an intimacy now that we experience with God, a love that God has for us. As a matter of fact, when, when Jesus was here on this earth, He was accused of being friends of sinners. And, and that accusation came from the religious leaders in a very derogatory way. It's like, oh, you hang out with sinners. You love sinners. Well, um, we see that throughout Scripture. Matthew's Gospel, Luke, John. But if you would, turn to Luke 15. Luke 15, in verse 1. You notice here uh, these words. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. You see, these sinners were drawn to Christ. They, they, uh, they were at ease with him, if you would. Um, what, what does it mean that Jesus is a friend of sinners? Well, it means that sinners feel welcome and comfortable around him. Now, Christ preached repentance. He didn't just say, you're okay, I'm okay, let's just hang out together. Jesus was preaching the truth, but even in that, sinners felt welcome and at ease with, with Christ and even comfortable around Him. I like the way that Dane Ortland puts it in his book, Gentle and Lowly. He says, there is a sense that there's something different about Jesus. He says, others hold these sinners at arm's length. As a matter of fact, if you look at Luke 15, 2, that's exactly what the religious leaders are doing. They're saying to Jesus, oh, you hang out with these tax collectors, these people who are traitors to our country, who collect taxes for our, the, our enemy who has occupied our country, and they're skimming money off the top just to make themselves rich at the expense of our own backs. You're hanging out with people like that and sinners. Almost like, well, I thank God that I'm not as bad as them. Because that's how they're used to being treated. But, but with Christ, He doesn't do that. He offers them hope. He offers them a, a fresh hope that they don't get from the established religion at that time. And so what you see here is, is that Christ shares the gospel with them. And, and that's the promise of the gospel and, and, and the message of the whole Bible in one sense. That in Jesus Christ, we are, are given a friend who will always enjoy rather than refuse our presence. Jesus is a, a friend whose friendship doesn't get stronger or weaker depending on how clean or unclean we are or how attractive or revolting we are or how faithful or fickle we are at the moment. But His friendliness for us 
is as fixed and stable as his declaration of our justification in him. Now, if we're honest, brothers and sisters, most of us, I think, will admit, even with our best friend, that we don't feel fully comfortable to divulge everything in our lives. We might like them. Uh, if they're our spouse, you know, if we're married, we may love them very much. And we may share a lot with them, but we may not entrust everything to them. There may be thoughts, there may be things that we struggle with that we are afraid that it might change their perception of us if we shared with them really, truly, honestly, everything. But what if you had a friend whom you knew would never raise their eyebrow no matter what you shared with them, even the worst parts of you? You know, all of our human friends, to a degree, have some kind of limit, it seems like. But what if there was a friend with no limit, uh, no limit to what he would put up with and still want to be with you? I love what Richard Sibbs says. He's a, a Puritan from years past. He said, all kinds and degrees of friendship meet in Christ. All the kinds and degrees of friendship meet in Christ. In other words, Christ is that, that perfect friend. You know, we don't have to do something to, to trigger in Christ's heart a love for us. And I want you to hear that. I want you to know that. Because as Revelation 3 says, Jesus is standing at the door knocking, wanting to come in and fellowship with him. I know we oftentimes misapply that verse and use that as an evangelistic verse, as if Christ is knocking on the door of the unbeliever. But actually that verse is written to the church. Do you know that kind of intimacy with Jesus? Do you know that kind of, of friendship with the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the amazing story of the gospel. And even more than a friend, he has made us sons. He has made us children of his family. And so that's what's so beautiful about the book of Romans. It takes us from the sense in which we are enemies of God under his wrath. And there instead now has been this great love for us and his people. And that's what motivated God to pursue us even as enemies to make us his sons. And so this morning, as we think about those things, as we consider those things, I want to ask the question that Paul asked in our text today in Romans 12.1. And that is, what is your response to the amazing reality of the gospel in your life? What is, the amazing, what is your response to the amazing reality of the gospel in your life? Well, that's what we see in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I want us, first of all, to look at this appeal and the basis for this appeal that, that Paul makes. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. In other words, I, I urge you, some of your translations may say, um, but the word there that's translated appeal or urge is parakaleo, okay? Which means to urge or to call, to exhort, to encourage. So Paul is saying, I, I encourage you. And, and if you ever heard a sermon on the Holy Spirit, you probably have heard how the Holy Spirit is our advocate, right? And, and the Greek word for that is paraclete. Well, parakaleo is just the verb form of of paraclete. 
And as the Holy Spirit is the one who's called to come alongside us to exhort or to urge or to comfort or to counsel us or to teach us or to remind us of the words of Jesus, Paul here, like the Holy Spirit, comes alongside these believers and he teaches them and reminds them of the consequences and the application of the truth of the gospel that he's been laying out for 11 chapters. He says, I want you to see, brothers and sisters, this is to have an outcome. It's not just a message, but there's something that happens in our lives as a result of that. And, and he doesn't simply command them to offer or to present themselves to God, but instead he appeals to their reason. He says, I, I appeal to you. In, in view of God's mercies. In other words, it's, it's only reasonable that you offer yourself to God because of what He's done for you. I like the way Luther put it. Luther argued that Paul didn't need to command us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice since he says it was incomprehensible to him that anyone who understood the gospel needed to be commanded to respond to God's mercy. Why should we have to be commanded? Would we not want to do that? I mean, it, it sort of reminds me of some movies I watch where there's the hero of the movie and he saves someone's life. And that person says to the hero, I'm going to follow you for the rest of my life and serve you because you have saved my life. How much more would we as Christians say that? But evidently it's not an automatic response because Paul appeals to these Roman Christians to live such a life. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. It's not just automatic. So we need to be challenged and encouraged in this way. Because of the mercies of God, because of His compassion, His pity, that God doesn't give us that which we deserve. Uh, God's not giving His followers the punishment for sin that they deserve because Jesus Christ is the one who has taken that. Now, this idea of mercy is used over and over and over and over. As a matter of fact, it's used at least 10 times just in like verse, uh, chapters 9 through, through 15 in, in the book of Romans. In Romans 9.15, it's used twice. Verse 16, verse 18... Uh, it's used twice, verse 23, in, in Romans 11, 30, and 31, and 32, uh, Romans 12, 8, and, and Romans 15, 9. And, and as you look at, at, at the, um, the conclusion of chapter 11, it summarizes all that it has taught about the sovereignty of God in salvation, as, as Paul says in verse 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. The only thing that saves a human race lost in sin is the mercy of God. God gives humanity what they don't deserve. He gives us forgiveness as we, we come to faith and we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has the right to show his mercy to those whom he desires to do so. So there may be those who are listening to me today and you may think, oh, but Pastor Rick, if you only knew what I did, I'm actually the person who doesn't look at other people and say, I'm not like them. I'm not as bad as them. I am bad. And there is no way that God could save me. But the Bible says quite the contrary. 
that God shows His mercy on those whom He chooses to show His mercy. And none of us can be such great sinners that God cannot reach us with the work of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's the appeal, and that's the basis. He appeals to us based on the mercies of God. And then He talks about the nature of that appeal. It's a, a total surrender to God as a, as a result of the salvation that we have received. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as, living, as a living sacrifice. The, the totality of that, the commitment that Paul is calling for here to Christians is found in that language of sacrifice. Uh, the Greek word that's translated to present is, is really a technical term used for ritual presentations of a sacrifice, to present a sacrifice before God. And so what he's basically saying to us as believers is, okay guys, climb up on the altar and give yourself as a sacrifice. That's the idea. Present your bodies. Present yourself as, as a living sacrifice. Now when he, he uses the word bodies, he's not just talking about our physical being, uh, but the totality of who we are. And a sacrifice is it's it's a a sacrifice that's that's totally um, offered or totally consumed, but not consumed in the sense of being burnt up, because he says that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. We're we're not killed like the Old Testament sacrifices of a of a lamb or a bull, because Paul doesn't have in mind martyrdom, but rather lives that are pleasing to God and that are set apart from Him, set apart to Him, not lives that are oriented to please ourselves. Brothers and sisters, I, I was thinking about this this week, and I really can't think of a way to convey this, but we are so much more selfish than we realize. And we are so much more self-focused and oriented than we really take to heart. I was just thinking about this week, about something as simple as somebody inviting us to go hang out together. And oftentimes, we don't give that person an answer right away. Well, why did we not do that? Well, there might be a, a myriad of reasons. Maybe they're scheduling things. But sometimes I've heard people say, if I'll say, well, are you going to go or not? And they're like, yeah, I don't know. I'm just sort of waiting to see if something better comes along. To see if I get a better offer. How much more self-consuming and selfish can that be than to say to this person, I'm not going to give you an answer because I really want to see if there's something better that's going to come along for me. There's just so many ways in which we do that. But anyway, Paul, he uses this verb to present. Uh, he's already used it earlier in the book of Romans. And I want you to turn to Romans 6, if you would. Romans 6 and uh, verse 13. Uh, we're going to look at a number of verses here. He said, do not present... Remember, do not offer this sacrifice. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And then skip down to verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And then verse 19. 
I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. You see, Paul is urging his audience not to present the parts of their bodies as to sin, not to offer their bodies as a sacrifice to sin, but to use them as instruments of righteousness. You see, we are living sacrifices in that our orientation is in life is to the new life that we have in Jesus Christ. God has changed us, brothers and sisters. He's not just sort of made us a little bit better. He has radically changed us. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Uh, if I might just deviate just a little bit, but to try to shed a little bit more light on this, I was thinking last week about the sermon from Mark and how Christ did all these miraculous things. He showed that he had power over demons and over a creation and illness and, and all these, even death itself. And we look at that and we call that a what? A miracle, right? Because it's something extraordinary. But what I want you to understand is, in God's economy, that is not something extraordinary. That is just taking us back from the fallen world in which we live, back to the redeemed world in which He created us. And so that's what the norm ought to be, that sickness is gone, that there's no place for demonic activity, that the creation that, that as Romans 8 talks about, it just yearns for the day when it won't be under sin, that Christ has is, is, is brought us back to that. And so, as He has made us new creatures in Christ, He is redeeming us back to that which humanity was created in the garden. Only He has overcome our, our sin. And so I think sometimes we don't really truly understand the extent of the work of Christ in our lives. But, but let me share that even further. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 4 as we talk about this new life in Christ. This is what Jesus is doing in us, okay? Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, uh, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Then he goes through and he begins to unpack what that looks like in terms of our relationship and our speech and things like that. But there's a, there's a great work that, that God is doing in us. And Paul is urging this audience not to present their parts of their bodies to sin, but as instruments of righteousness. 
Uh, that's a, a, a total commitment to God. The Apostle Paul is calling for us to give up everything for Jesus Christ. And he's given us the ability to do that as we trust in him. To, to put ourselves on the altar and to give up everything for him. You know salvation is free, but it is a gift that costs you everything. Brothers and sisters, I, I think this is really relevant for uh, our times in which we live. We, we, our world is a mess. I, I haven't talked to too many people that haven't said that statement. You know, they're like, wow, things are just a mess and they're sort of crazy. And it can become so easy to focus on the things that are going on around us rather than focus on presenting our lives to God. I think, how would the church look different if rather than being so consumed with Facebook and all these other news things, Facebook's not a news thing, but where you read the news on Facebook or other places, you know, if rather than focusing so much on that, we just thought about presenting our bodies, our lives to God, how would that change us? I mean, the idea of presenting, it's, it's an active word. It involves the human will. It's not something that we passively yield to, but it's a, a, an active presentation of our life to God. It is voluntarily placing one's life into God's hands totally and unreservedly. Say, Jesus, I'm yours. Whatever you want to do with me, whatever you want, I am yours. It's not a sitting around and waiting for God to change my heart to want to do these things. It is a sense of saying, Lord, I'm yours. It's an act of obedience that springs from the human will. And so when we become Christians, we make such a commitment. We say, Father, I am yours. Now, I think this is why um, American evangelical uh, gospel presentations are so weak. And, and in some cases, they're just not right. They're, they're not the gospel. Because so often the gospel is presented as, how do you want to make your life better? All you have to do is just accept Jesus. And if you accept Jesus, He takes away your sins, you go to heaven someday, and, and your life will be better. That's not at all. It's a sense of coming and dying to ourselves. It's a sense of being set free to live for the will of God. It's a sense of being redeemed. You're saying to God, you have redeemed me from sin by your grace through Christ, and now I commit my life to you unreservedly. For I want your will more than I want anything else. Here's my whole body. Do with it as you see fit. It's a little bit like when we take our wedding vows. When, when, you, when, you, sit bef when you stand before the church and a minister and you say, I do. There's a lot that's wrapped up in that I do. And it's in much the same way when a person comes to faith in Christ. When you say I do, uh, there's a whole life long uh, string of events that flow out of that I do when you take those vows to, to love and to cherish and, and to care for that other person, then you live that out every day of your life. And it's much the same way with our commitment to Christ. And I want to say that because in our English vocabulary, the connotation for a sacrifice is to voluntarily give up something that we have a right to keep. If I sacrifice something, it means I voluntarily give up something that I have a right to keep. It's mine, but you ought to appreciate the fact that I'm giving this to you because I didn't have to do that. But that's not the, the Jewish mindset of a sacrifice. Uh, a Jew, whenever he would sacrifice 
something he was voluntarily giving back to God that which rightly belonged to God in the first place. God is the one that gave it to them. The Jew knew that he had no right to the sacrifice, that it was God's property. And so when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ and we sacrifice, we offer up our bodies, we're only giving back to him that which already belongs to him. But brothers and sisters, that's not our mindset as Americans. It's my money, it's my time, it's, it's my, you fill in the blank. And that's how we view things. But that's not the biblical understanding. Let me read from you from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We belong to the Lord. You and all that you have belong to Him in view of His mercy. It reminds me of that phrase from the old hymn, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. You see, that's what Paul was saying in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, Paul was overwhelmed with the gospel. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. At the end of chapter 11. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Jack Arnold, who's a PCA pastor, he said, you know, he said, more than an expression of awe and wonder in the heart of the Apostle Paul, he says what Paul was saying here in this chapter is it's primarily an expression of the utter madness of trying to live life apart from God's divine control. In other words, it's the foolishness of trying to live life apart from God. You know, it says, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. God is the beginning, the middle, and the end of everything. You know, and, and that's how we are to live our lives, with God in the focus of everything. When I think about the schooling I'm going to go to, I shouldn't think about what school I want to go to or what will benefit me the best way. I should think, where is the Lord leading me to go? As I may be looking at a new job or I go to work every day, I don't think about just the to-do list of the things I need to get done in my job today, but instead I'm thinking, Lord, how can I serve you this day? God is the beginning. He is the focus of all these things. You see, the Christian is in God's hand. God is never in our hands. And yet so oftentimes we want to use God and we want God to, to bend His will to give us those things that would please us and that would satisfy us. But that's not the posture that we see here for those that have been saved in Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, set apart, pleasing to God. Now, now notice the difference here, brothers and sisters, between this attitude of submission because of the fact that we've been set free in Christ 
to that of Romans 1, where humanity is seeking to suppress the truth of God. They not only don't want to do God's will, they don't even want to know that He exists. But the gospel call is one of continually dying to self. A halfway commitment is just irrational. To think that we're going to give God a part of our lives as if that's just a great thing and He ought to appreciate that is a misunderstanding of who we are in Christ. We are His completely. And understand that God wants all of you. He doesn't want to, us to use some of our talents. He wants us to dedicate every, all of our talents to the Lord. He doesn't just want a little bit of our time. He wants all of our time. He doesn't just want our tithe and our money. He wants, he wants all of that. God even wants our bodies to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And He wants us to do so as worship. Uh, what we do here on Sunday morning is worship. But it's not the totality of what the Bible teaches us about worship. This is corporate worship. But there's also worship of our lives. We worship God all day long and, and, um, and everything we do glorifies and worships Him. When a housewife does the dishes and she cleans the house uh, for God, she does that to His glory. Now, if she's doing it for her own vain reputation because she wants to be known for having the perfect house, then yeah, maybe that doesn't glorify God. But as she faithfully serves her family in that way, she is glorifying God. A father who finds time to spend with his children is glorifying God. A businessman who does his, his work well for the glory of God uh, is its worship. Worship is being occupied with Christ in everything and doing all things for the glory of God. That's it. It's that focus where God is the focus of everything. And, and this can sneak into our lives in, in just little tiny ways. I'm reminded of the, the story of Dr. Barnhouse. He was a Presbyterian minister of years ago. And he and his wife were driving to a meeting. And he was, let's just say, he had a lead foot. So he's driving down the road way over the speed limit. And, and his wife looks at him and she says, Honey, are you worshiping God by speeding? And he said, uh, What do you mean? And she says, well, the Bible says that we are to obey our government, which includes the speed laws of the state. And, and it says your body is to be presented to God, which is your spiritual worship. But your foot apparently isn't, for it isn't keeping the speed laws. Everybody needs a wife like that, right? No, honestly, it's really good. Well, Dr. Barnhouse understood his wife's point, and, and he apologized. He realized, I, I can't be breaking the law and yet still pleasing God. Brothers and sisters, as we come to this text today, let me just ask you this. Are you grateful for the mercies of God in your life? If you're, if you're sitting there and, and you're sort of dull in your commitment to God, or if you're sitting there and you're, you're looking for God to, to fulfill your desires and, and wishes, let me remind you that, that God did not save you for you to use Him to be the mortar for the bricks of your ambition and desires. He saved you to make you the bricks of His building. He's building His church. And God doesn't exist for us. Rather, He has created us for His own pleasure. You see, the surrender of one's will to Jesus is essential to a life of joy and peace. If we truly want that sense of joy and peace, we must give everything to Him. 
But oftentimes it's very scary as we think about that. To think, what if I'm going to give everything to the Lord? What, what if he, and then you fill in the blank, and there could be great fear. Well, it reminds me of a story of another minister by the name of F.B. Meyer. And, and he was wrestling with that whole thing. He was challenged to, to give his life to the Lord. But he said, Satan kept whispering in his ear, but what if God requires this? What if God you know, takes away your wife or takes away your child or in, on all these things? And he said, as I was wrestling with these things, he said, then I began to think of my daughter. He said, my daughter is rather strong-willed. But he said, imagine if she came to me and she said, Dad, from tonight on, I'm going to put my life in your hands. Do with it what you will. He said, I was thinking, if that happened, and I went to my wife, would I say to my wife, hey, wife, our daughter has put her life in my hands. And so now I just can't wait to torture her and to make her life miserable. He's like, no, I wouldn't do that at all. He said, I would probably go to my wife and, and I would say, do you know of anything in our daughter's life that's hurting her? And my wife would say, well, yeah, probably this, this, and this. And she says, do you think that she loves that thing too much? And he said, my wife would probably say yes. And, and he would say, well, then she needs to give that up. He says, but we'll make it as easy on her as we can. Uh, we must take from her the things that are hurting her, but, but we'll give her everything that will make her life one long summer day of bliss. And he says, that's how it is with the Lord with us. He loves us so much. Brothers and sisters, he, he took us from being enemies. Then he pursued us and he provided a way for salvation. How will he? give us everything that is good can we not entrust ourselves to a God such as that I don't know where you're at today or the things that, that you're wrestling with but maybe you're here today and, and there's a sin that, that you've just sort of held on to a sort of a pet sin that, that you think brings you pleasure you know it, it dishonors the Lord but you don't want to give that up but Jesus calls you to give that up today, to lay that down, to sacrifice that, to walk in His strength and in His power because He loves you and He wants to give you what's best. Maybe you uh, struggle with your tongue and you say things that cut and hurt other people. Jesus Christ has saved you to set you free that you might offer that on the sacrifice on, on the altar. It may be your time. You may see your time as your own and, and you're consumed with all the things that, that you like and so you don't have time to do the things for the Lord. He's saying offer that on the sacrifice. He has given His life on the cross that we might offer ourselves as a sacrifice to Him, giving Him that which already belongs to Him. Amen? Let's take a moment this morning. And just meditate upon this word as we pause.
Oh Jesus, we thank you so much that you love us so much that you have set us free uh, from the, 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 the sin that wants to hold us as slaves and that we no longer have to present our being as instruments of sin. Lord, I pray that you would help us today and to, to be overwhelmed with what Christ has done for us and know that we no longer have to be slaves to these things, but we can be set free to give up our own will and our own desires and to do that which, which pleases you. And so, Lord, please be with us individually and even corporately as a body to offer our whole being to you. And Lord, may you do your work in us, God, to, to follow you and your will. I, I wonder, Lord, what, what would happen as we, as we take this to heart in 2021. If as a church we'd say, Lord, you're my everything. Whatever you want, I will do. Just lead me. God, help us to be able to say that. Help us to stand, to, to, to do whatever ministries we, you call us to do or to have whatever conversations you want us to have. Lord, to, to follow you. And we pray, God, that in these things that you would be glorified. And Lord, I pray for those that may be listening today who don't know you. God, who have uh, been protecting their life, thinking that they're a better master, they're a better God of their life than you are. Oh, but God, open their eyes to the truth and the reality that you are the only one that can set us free. And may they enjoy the freedom that only comes in Christ. We thank you, Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen.